Let's pray together. Our Father, your word tells us that this word, your word, is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. Lord, show us the way that we should walk and give us the grace and the power to walk in it. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, I remember the first proper desktop computer I ever bought. It was a Dell. It looked like a breeze block and it was slower than the traffic on Queen's Ferry Road. But it was valuable to me. And because it was valuable to me, I insured it. I insured it against all kinds of external damage. If a burglar stole it, it was protected. If uh, I accidentally spilled something on it, uh, I was protected. Nothing could go wrong. Until the day when I received an email from a friend and I opened a, an attachment in it and stupidly downloaded a Trojan virus to my computer. Uh, I remember the computer froze, the keyboard wouldn't do anything. Uh, I remember pressing the power button fruitlessly. It just wouldn't work for me, although it was doing something for someone else. Well, I sank back into my seat and what was sitting there on the desk, the Norton antivirus software that I hadn't got round to installing. I had protected the computer from external damage, but failed to protect it from internal corruption. That was careless of me and carelessness was costly. Now that's something of a parable of what it's like for a church. You see, churches like my PC are vulnerable to external and internal threats. External threats include persecution, both verbal and physical. We thought about that last week. But churches are also vulnerable to internal corruption, like false teaching and sinful behaviour. Now, this church in Pergamon experienced both, but had only protected itself against the first. It's, uh, it's like they bought the right insurance, but forgot the antivirus software. Their carelessness was also costly. That's why we see in this passage, Jesus rebukes them. The question for us today is, are we careless in this area too? Well, let's walk through this passage in two chunks and let's explore how it applies to us today. So the first point, as we look at verse 13 together, is this. This church handled external persecution well. Now, I'm sure you've noticed by now, but Jesus begins each of these letters to the churches with the words, I know. So nothing that goes on in churches that bear his name goes unnoticed. And what does he know about this church in Pergamum? Well, two things. One, he knows that they live in a place where it's hard to be a Christian. Uh, he says so. Uh, Pergamum, of course, was uh, a huge city, uh, the capital of the Roman province of Asia in its day. If, uh, if Lonely Planet produced a guide to this city, it would be called Pergamum, the multi-faith capital of the world. I mean, there were tons of temples to lots and lots of different gods. And the Pergamenes themselves, they were so proud of their temples and their interfaith relations. But there was one temple that they were particularly proud of. It was the altar of Zeus. 
Now, the altar of Zeus sat the same way that Edinburgh Castle sits, uh, on top of a hill above the city. Uh, its prominence is a statement in itself. But for the altar of Zeus, so was its shape. It was throne-shaped. And that may well be behind Jesus' description of the city. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, if that's not a descriptive statement about the altar of Zeus, it's certainly an indication of Satan's grip on Pergamum. It is a hotbed of idolatry. He lives there. And that's what made this, made it hard for Christians to live there. It's going to be hard, of course, if you live in Satan's neighbourhood. Uh, we can see that from uh, what they experience. Uh, we know this from general persecution too. You're going to feel under pressure to conform to a city's way of life. Uh, you're going to feel out of place when this city's doing what this city does. And you're going to feel the heat turned up when people are offended, either by your words or your witness, or by you not participating in the ungodly practices that they themselves are carrying out. Now, it's not so different in Edinburgh, though, is it? I guess what is different, though, is the extent of the opposition and the persecution. I mean, no one in a church in Edinburgh, as far as I know, has been martyred for their faith. Not in Charlotte Chapel, not around here, not yet. But someone in the church in Pergamum has, and Jesus knows about that. His name's Antipas, who is described in terms that are used of Jesus himself in chapter one. He is, was a faithful witness. So the first thing Jesus knows about them is that they live in a place where it's hard to be a Christian. What a comfort that is for them to hear. He understands. But secondly, he commends them. Really, He knows that they remain true to his name throughout the persecution. Verse 13 says, uh, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. So they didn't break when the pressure was applied or uh, buckle when the heat was turned up. They stayed faithful, just as Daniel and his three friends did under Nebuchadnezzar's persecution. And as a result, they commended Christ and his gospel to Satan's city. That's a great thing to do. And that's what Jesus loves, to see his churches doing. And Jesus loves it, you see, when his churches are, are so concerned for the glory of his name and his reputation among those who love other gods, that they are willing to even suffer and even die than deny him. Their faithfulness is that strong. Well, they handled this persecution well, but what about us? The question is, do we treasure and honour the name of Christ and all that that name encapsulates to the point that we're willing to suffer shame and scorn for bearing it? It's an important question. Now, I said before, we're threatened with less than those in the Pergamon church. And yet, aren't we sometimes too slow to speak up for him? Or too timid to take even a tiny stand for him? I feel I am at times, and all because we fear losing friends or face. But what's worth more? And what achieves more for glory, for his glory? What will what will achieve more in eternal terms? 
what's more likely to lead our friends and our neighbours to see God's salvation? It's our faithfulness to the name of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Well, Jesus says to them, says to us, I know it's hard living where you live, but faithfulness is what he calls for. He knows what we face. He supplies the strength that we need to stand up under that temptation as Ephesians 6 uh, helpfully reminds us. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. If we take that on board and by his grace live it out, we can handle external threats to our church's health well, just like the church in Pergamum did. Now the church in Pergamum handled that external persecution well, but how sad then to hear Jesus' report, not secondly, that this church handled internal corruption badly. That's what we see in verses 14 and 15. Now in 14 and 15, Jesus rebukes this church for failing to root out bad doctrine. Now that's striking in itself, isn't it? You might think that Jesus would go easy on them, given how well they're doing in the face of persecution. But truth matters to Jesus. It matters a huge amount. And the preservation of both the purity of the gospel and the purity of the church, the carrier of that gospel, matters to him. To the extent that despite the hardships and persecution they face, Jesus will still say in verse 14, yet this, I have a few things against you. Now what exactly does Jesus have against this church family in Pergamum? Well, they've carelessly harboured people who intend to corrupt the church from the inside. Verse 14 says, There are some among you, like uh, human Trojans if you like, who found their way into the church's life, they're around their dinner tables, they're in their services, they're in their growth groups and so on. And verse 14 tells us about what their intentions are, but it needs a little bit of unpacking. It's, it, basically, they intend to corrupt the church. That's what Jesus means when he says they hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, what is the teaching of Balaam? In, in short, Balaam's teaching is like a how-to course. How to ruin God's people through deliberate moral corruption. You can read all about Balaam and all about this incident in Numbers 22 to 31. But here is the background. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet of sorts who rented himself out to an ungodly king for cash. The king's name was Balak. He's mentioned here in Revelation 2. He was the king of Moab and he hired Balaam to call down curses on God's people, Israel, when he saw them approaching his land. Curse them for me, he said. And Balaam said... Sure, I'll do my best. The thing is, whenever Balaam went out to look over God's people and open his mouth to curse them, all he could do was bless the name of God and bless the people of God. When you read the kind of things that he said, it sounds like you're reading a psalm. It sounds like something you'd be happy to pray. And Balak, obviously, was simply saying, Balaam, what are you doing? I'm paying you to curse them, but all you're doing is blessing them. Tell you what, I'll pay you some more and let's see what we can do. And Balaam, of course, said, sure, pay me some more. I'll give it another go. 
So he tried and the same thing happened. So Balaam said, now here comes the teaching of Balaam. Balaam said, look Balak, if God doesn't say it, I can't say it. That's the way prophecy works. But I'll tell you what to do, okay? Here is my lesson in cursing them. Befriend the Israelites. Send in your prettiest women in their most provocative clothing and let them get to know the Israelite men. Then get involved in their worship and then later get them involved in yours. That's Balaam's teaching. It's a lesson in covert seduction and the devil's behind it as much as he's behind the external harsh, mean persecution. You see, for him, if persecution doesn't work, perversion will. And that's what this group in this church hold to. And that's what that church family in Pergamum has allowed. And that's why Jesus in verse 16 says, repent. He calls, note, the whole church to repent. It's not this covert group that's called to repent. It's the whole church. It's not the idolatry or the immorality either that Jesus is pulling them up for, although he's totally against those things, of course. It's the church's failure to do anything about this group or their influence on the church. Now pause and ask the question, are we guilty of the same kind of thing? We'd be naive to think that this is just a first century problem. Satan's schemes haven't changed. If he can't get us by external persecution, he'll try internal perversion. Well, it may be rare in our context to find people who are intentionally trying to get in and corrupt the church from within. We still do come across people who unintentionally threaten to corrupt the doctrine and practice of the church. It can happen when we're careless about those we admit into membership. It can happen if we're careless about appointments to teaching positions in the life of the church, whether that's Sunday school or a small group. And it can happen if we turn a blind eye to the kind of immorality that we see uh, or that we even talk about in hushed tones among ourselves, but don't talk about honestly and openly in church meetings with express regret something to think about. I guess the overarching question for us here that, that serves as something of an antivirus for our church family is, how far are we prepared to go in our obedience to God's word to maintain the purity of Charlotte Chapel, Christ's church? I mean, we should care enough about his name to fight for true doctrine. We should care enough about the purity of his church to practice loving formative, corrective discipline. We do that together, one-to-one. -to -one. We do it in small groups, fairly regularly. We can do it when it matters, as Matthew 18 highlights. Well, Jesus rebukes them for failing to root out bad doctrine. And having done so, he then commands their repentance and the church itself must choose. 
Now notice what happens if they don't turn from their wrongdoing and do what's right. If they don't repent, sinners will face the sword of Jesus' judgment. Now verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So this is how seriously Jesus takes the integrity and the holiness of his church. He says, if you don't do it, if you don't deal with this, I will. Now, what is the sword that's in view here? Well, the Bible tells us it is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 speaks in similar terms. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing cut quite like God's word. It's so powerful and effective, of course, because we can't separate his word from his awesome authority. Hebrews 4, Revelation 2, verse 12, actually, reminds us that it's two-edged, which means it cuts both ways. It convicts and it condemns. It cuts decisively through an intolerably wicked act like this group's covert corruption. He speaks against their sin. But it also cuts decisively through the malpractice, the careless malpractice of a church. Not to condemn, of course, but to correct. That's what Christ will do if they don't repent. But if, however, they do repent, what can they look forward to? This, they can look forward to true satisfaction and intimacy that Christ promises those who are victorious. Nike, Nike. Well, verse 17. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So what is Jesus promising here? Satisfaction with all that Jesus provides. Uh, manna is, of course, the bread, that miraculous bread that God gave his people uh, in their wilderness years. And Jesus, who in John's gospel says, I am the bread of life, here says, I promise you something even more satisfying in the life to come for those who are faithful. Personal intimacy with Jesus himself is the next thing. And that's what the, the second thing, that's what the stone with the, the new name signifies. Now, there's something about giving someone a name that communicates relationship, even authority. You know, when our kids were born, we give them names because they're ours. It's a, it's a sign of belonging. No one else can give them a name and have it stick. It's us. We have that responsibility. Similarly, we have pet names for those that we love, like nicknames. I have a name for my wife and no one else gets to call her what I call her. She is mine. She's not yours, not anyone else's. And these are the names that indicate uh, belonging and intimacy. Now, the whiteness of the stone is either an assurance of pardon, for white stones were tossed into the court as part of judicial hearings, but it can also be uh, an invitation stone. White stones with an invitee's name were often used to invite a guest to a feast, and usually a feast of some decadence. So Jesus, through his saving blood then, holds out to both 
both to saved sinners like us, uh, forgiveness. Uh, he holds out both forgiveness and invitation. So while we're not sure what it is, we are sure that he extends both. Now, don't miss the link here, though. Between what Jesus offers, the victorious ones, who have ears to hear what Christ says and what Satan has offered through his covert seduction of the church. You know, it's like Satan offers you or entices you with some kind of um, lesser thing than Jesus. It's like Satan entices you with slim fast and Christ with Christmas dinner. That's the, the kind of, the level of comparison here. If you haven't yet come to Christ, you might find that the things that you're doing, the gods that you're living for, whether that's money, sex or power or whatever, you might find these things to be tasty treats. You might enjoy them in the same way, sadly, as much as I enjoyed my sin before becoming a Christian. But they are nothing compared to the delicacies and the delights that are in store for those who know and love Jesus. And what's worse, you will be denied even the slightest pleasure, the slightest morsel or refreshment if you do not turn to him in faith and repentance. Because Jesus also promises that those who deny him all the way to their death will face, as we looked at last week, an eternal death in hell apart from him and the celebration and the feasting that his faithful ones, his church, will enjoy. But he died and rose again to make it possible that you may be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and find your salvation in him. For us as a church family, this lesson to the church in Pergamum is a call for us to, to mull over and learn the lessons that Jesus himself is teaching them. To be alert to both external threats and internal threats. To be alert to the internal threats to the health of our church family and heed the seriousness of Christ's call to discipline and not to entertain false teaching and the sinful behaviour that can result. He is gracious enough to speak these words to us, to tell us they're not just for them, they're for all the churches. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark about Satan's schemes. Indeed, in this passage, you show us too the external threat of persecution and the internal threat of sinful corruption. Lord, protect us from both and help us to be wise to both, that we might honour your name and live for your glory no matter what we face. Lord, forgive us for ways when we have not taken care to practice the care and the discipline of each other in our own church life. Help us to do as you instruct us to do in your word and to practice the kind of love that is willing uh, to rebuke and to encourage. Lord, we pray 
that as we do so, you might help us to shine more brightly for you and give us the courage to tell more people about you, that we might not see our faces saved by keeping quiet, but other people saved by our speaking out. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.